according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me once again in Matthew 21, as well as Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12. So however you choose to do that, turning to four simultaneous Bible passages. If you make use of the Logos Bible software, then you can simply open them up in four windows side by side. In fact, I like to tile them across the top of my screen. And then below those four windows, I have the Greek text uh, for each of those particular passages. Uh, and of course, they're all linked and it's a neat uh, gospel comparative uh, layout. All right, Matthew chapter 21. When they had approached Jerusalem and come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken of, Spoken through the prophet, say to the, as the prophet, you know which prophet now, by the way, because you were in class on Sunday, weren't you? Through the prophet Zechariah, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on the colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. All right. Well, we got a good start on this last week. I want to get right back to it here today and uh, see if we can get all the way down through point six. Uh, if we hit it hard enough, perhaps uh, perhaps we might just make it. Before we begin, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, distractions set aside, and we are humble under the authority of the teaching of God's Word. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and the privilege that it is for us to assemble together. Father, we uh, thank You for Your grace, for Your faithfulness, for the body of Christ, and the the blessing that we have to receive instruction, Father, to be built up in the faith and strengthened in the inner man. Father, we thank you for the spiritual realities of our uh, estate in heaven and the treasure we're laying up in heaven where uh, uh, thieves do not break and steal, where, where moth and rust do not destroy. And, Father, where uh, heavy wind doesn't blow panels off our, off our roof. Father, it's just, uh, just a glory to be uh, eternally minded. And I thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We also learned this morning where the breaker switches are for the parking lot lights, the pole lights. I'll show you before we leave, and we'll see. That may not fix it, but we uh, we flipped the breakers anyway, and we'll see if that works tonight. Sunday night, y'all left in the dark, and, and we'll see why the uh, why the pole lights aren't coming on. Okay. Well, this is episode number one. Episode number one. Why did we start the numbers all over again? Uh, because we have come to a new segment of our Harmony of the Gospels. The Harmony of the Gospels is broken down into manageable um, chunks or manageable divisions, uh, starting with the, uh, the, the birth and adolescence of, of Christ and getting into the early Judean ministry where he had a co-ministry with John the Baptist at the Jordan River. And then the, uh, the largest of all the divisions is the Galilean ministry, the great Galilean ministry with all the circuit uh, travels and all the messages and, and things that happened there. 
uh, the, the walking on water, feeding of 5,000, uh, uh, all of the tremendous stories that take place in the Galilean ministry. The most well-known features of, of Christ's ministry happen in the Galilean ministry. Then after that, the last Judean and Perean ministry where uh, more and more folks are abandoning him. The messages are getting tougher. He's preparing his disciples for the coming cro- uh, cross. They don't want to hear it. Uh, so he has conflict even with his own disciples and so forth. Well, that all comes to a close with uh, Zacchaeus up on a tree and the, the uh, anointing of his feet there with uh, Mary and the home of Lazarus and the, and the raising of Lazarus and so forth. Which brings us now, the Priam ministry is done and he's now in the final week. And so this segment in the uh, Harmony of the Gospels is called the Jesus, uh, I think it's called Jesus Final Week of Work at Jerusalem. It's a very um, wordy heading so i abbreviate it uh, fww at j and even that even the abbreviation is pretty long but anyway well uh this is the passion week the final week and it begins on palm monday and that's where we are and i understand the catholics and tradition calls it palm sunday and so forth and if you follow the traditional roman dating then the passion week has a what they call the silent wednesday okay and it's a silent wednesday because they can't figure out what else to do they're missing a day uh, between the triumphal entry and the cross on Good Friday. I think they're accurate with the cross on Good Friday. Um, other people try to fix the Silent Wednesday problem by moving the cross up to Thursday. And there is a, a segment that will defend a Thursday crucifixion. It's nice because it removes the, the missing, the Silent Wednesday, but there's no need to do that. Uh, you don't have a Silent Wednesday anyway if you just simply identify Palm Monday for what it is and, and you don't worry about it. And so that's how we've scheduled our Passion Week in, the, in our harmony is with a Palm Monday. And then there is no missing Wednesday or Silent Wednesday. And we have each day-by-day account reckoned for, including the crucifixion on Friday. And we'll, we'll detail that some more as we uh, go day by day through this particular week. All right. We gave the geographical introduction at a point one, Bethany and Bethphage. Bethany was the village where Jesus would retreat each night in the final week. He's going to go back Monday night. He's going to go back Tuesday night. He's going to go back Wednesday night. Uh, the only night he doesn't go back is Thursday night because on Thursday he leaves the upper room after having had his Passover meal with the disciples and given them communion. He will then depart and go into the garden where he will pray uh, and await his uh, his arrest. Bethphage is uh, the other village uh, on the or one of several villages on the uh, rim of the Mount of Olives. Uh, basically, you can think of Bethany on the southeast slope and uh, Bethphage on the southwest slope might give you a visual way to think of that. And uh, there's a village there with a colt uh, ready to go, just ready to go, prepared. The owner is ready and uh, just waiting for the Messiah to come. And why was he so ready? Why was he so prepared? Well, I think he had a biblical understanding of the uh, the date involved. Uh, two disciples went in and uh, yet the preparations were already made. Jesus anticipated that the colt's owners would have questions, uh, but uh, their questions are very positive questions, and uh, they are ready to give up that colt the minute they hear that Yahweh has need of it. And as soon as they're told that Yahweh has need of it, there you go. That's why he's here. The colt has been prepared. They are going to approve the colt's prophesied use. Both the animal and the day are biblically predicted. Zechariah 9.9, of course, which we studied on not only last Wednesday, but also on Sunday, 
the colt, the not just a beast of burden, a very humble animal, but then the child of a beast of burden. So you see, we've doubled the humility application there. The, a, a donkey would be humble in contrast with a stallion or a war horse or even a, a normal horse. Uh, but then, as if a donkey is not humble enough, how about the colt? How about the foal? A, a young donkey, one that has never been ridden. One that maybe is not uh, as strong as even it's going to be when it uh, when it fully grows. So the animal has been prophesied as well as even to the very day, the timing. After 69 sevens, Messiah the Prince will be cut off. All right. And we spent the bulk of our time last week actually going through the uh, prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, and showing you how 77s have been decreed. 70, what we think of as septads, seven-year periods of time. And uh, out of those 70, 69 of them are finished by the cross, and one remains. Okay, One seven-year period remains, and that's a, a period of each year is a period of 360 days, by the way. They are, they are 360-day years, not, not the modern solar calendar. So, the tribulation, by the way, is coming up. It's 1,260 days in each of the three-and-a-half-year halves of that tribulation. So, if you want to double 1,260, then you, what does that give you? 2,520 is the uh, total number of days in every septad. Okay? Seven times 360. So, uh, I do recommend Harold Honer. Uh, you can get the journal articles or, actually, those are kind of hard to find, uh, but you can get the book that was printed, that was published based on those journal articles. It's called Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. And it is, it is very well worth the, uh, the money that you're going to spend on it. All right. Uh, because it's not, it not only is it going to answer the 70-week prophecy and show you how from the decree of, of Artaxerxes to Palm Monday you have the, the exact 173,880 days. It's great for that, but it also answers... Why we hold to a Friday crucifixion and not a Wednesday or a Thursday. Uh, it also answers uh, why 33 A.D., not 32 or 30. Uh, it answers um, the year of Christ's birth. Um, it, it answers a lot of that. A lot of, that's why it's called chronological aspects of the life of Christ. So very worthwhile in, uh, in several different uh, applications. All right. Point two then. The coats and the palm branches were expressions of acclamation and uh, expressions of acclamation. I don't remember if I gave this to you last week or not. I did not. Okay. Oh, and if I'm going to turn to Maccabees, then I better get my software running. <laughs> I don't happen to have Maccabees up here in the pulpit. So we'll get the software man. But the coats and palm branches are expressions of acclamation, all right? Uh, King Jehu is the example there in 2 Kings 9:13 and then Simon Maccabeus in 1 Maccabees 13:51. Uh, in our culture, in our day and age, we would use an expression or uh, an application like rolling out the red carpet, for example. We would we would find some way to acknowledge that somebody important has arrived and uh, we would welcome them with pomp and circumstance. We would um, we would have different uh, features of uh, ceremony and, uh, and respect. And that's uh, what we see illustrated here. Uh, in Second Kings chapter 9, you have Jehu and um, the mad, uh, <laughs> the crazy chariot driver. And uh, he comes out in verse 11. 
But the actual uh, garments we see is verse 13. But Jehu came out to the servants of his master, and one said to him, Is, is all well? Why uh, did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to him, You know very well the man and his talk. And they said, It is a lie. Tell us now. And he said, uh, Thus and thus he said to me, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then they hurried, and each man took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps and blew the trumpet, saying, Jehu is king. All right, so there's his uh, acclamation. Acclamation. It's just a public um, expression of joy. Or maybe not joy. Yeah, joy is part of it, but a public expression of um, election night results. <laughs> okay? This is our new king. Here he is. And uh, some folks are very happy, and, and some folks maybe are not. Um, that's the only biblical example we have. There are secular examples as well as um, in the Apocrypha, 1 Maccabees 13.51. Go ahead and close all those. 1 Maccabees 13.51, is that what I said? And... Um, So they also of the tower in Jerusalem were kept so straight that they could neither come forth nor go into the country nor buy nor sell. Wherefore they were in great distress for want of victuals, and a great number of them perished through famine. Uh, okay, the English translation on this is rather King Jamesy. It's an older English translation. Um, do I have a better? I've got to have a better. Maybe not. Something that doesn't use victuals. <laughs> NRSV, you're right. That would do it. Yeah. So they were very hungry. Many of them perished from famine. Then they cried uh, to Simon to make peace with them, and he did so. But he expelled them from there and cleansed the citadel from its pollutions. Uh, this is during the Maccabean warfare against the Greeks and after... Uh, their great victory. On the 23rd day of the second month in the 171st year, the Jews entered it with praise and palm branches, with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments, with hymns and songs, because of the great, a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. Simon decreed that every year they should celebrate this day with rejoicing. What are we seeing again? We're seeing a humanly invented holiday that's being prescribed for the Jewish people to observe. And as we studied in Zechariah, God says, are you doing this for me or are you doing this for yourself? God, Yahweh himself has established Israel's calendar, including Israel's holy days. Okay? A Gentile nation, a secular nation may have holidays of their choosing, but a holy nation has holy days of Yahweh's choosing. And that becomes very important. He strengthened the fortifications of the Temple Hill alongside the Citadel, and he and his men lived there. Simon saw that his son John had reached manhood. Anyway, um, the mention I was looking forward to there was the palm branches and the and the uh, acclamation, and that's up there in verse 51. All right. So there's your dose of Maccabees for the uh, for the day. By the way, Maccabees is not Bible. It's not God breathed. It's not inspired. 
And don't waste your time with second, third, and fourth. That's garbage. But first Maccabees actually has a very legitimate, valuable um, benefit uh, historically. And when you can use first Maccabees and Josephus uh, against each other and with each other to corroborate historical information, uh, you got a uh, tremendous record of the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it is very, uh, very worthwhile to understand that history. All right. Now, uh, understanding with this, of course, the honor as a king was undeniable. The honor as a king was undeniable. They were singing Hosanna. They were, uh, act, they were uh, praising the son of David. The son of David. That is royalty. That is the recognition of who is entitled to David's throne. And uh, so it's undeniable. The Pharisees were trying to get him to shut up. The uh, concern was was that Rome was going to view this as uh, as a revolution, and that uh, the Pharisees and the, Sa- and the Sanhedrin was going to uh, face repercussions because of that. And they're going to be very clear uh, when they put him on their show trials and when they accuse him before uh, uh, before Pontius Pilate and so forth that they viewed this as treason against Rome. And uh, and it's it's remarkable. Even um, you know that's why Pilate was trying to trying to get the Lord to, uh, to testify. Are you a king? He would ask him. And, and uh, the, the Pharisees and the, and the Sanhedrin say, oh, we have no king but Caesar. See? And so we're going to see a lot of these details coming up in the, in the uh, process of his trial this coming Friday. So the honor as a king was undeniable. And uh, coming from the children and coming from the, uh, uh, those that had the divine viewpoint perspective. I like the... Um, there's a statement coming up that demonstrates um, it's in, oh, we're in Luke. I'll get it. Well, we can peek at it now. I'll give it to you in a point under point three. But in Luke 19, you know, the Lord said, you, you, you can't shut this up. You know, if you insist on and putting a clamp over these children's mouths, um, <laughs> he says uh, in verse 40 of Luke 19, Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. The stones will cry out. You know, God is able to lift up stones to make them sons of Abraham. God is able to give voice to the stones, to sing the praises of Jesus Christ, to fulfill the prophecies of Zechariah that uh, they are going to sing Hosanna. They are going to testify that this is the rightful king. All right, the honor as a king is undeniable. So too is the humility, the humility of a servant likewise, the humility of a servant likewise. And so both realities are here. It is not, they are not mutually exclusive. Um, It tends to be, of course, in the human realm that with the honors that are bestowed comes great um, arrogance, pride, and and, uh, and, and human beings don't handle the accolades and the honor very well. Um, But don't think that they have to be exclusive. God, of course, in his glory, has absolute, um, infinite glory, and yet he also is, has infinite humility, and Christ reflects that. So we have undeniable honor, and yet the humility of a servant. He is a king, and he is a servant, both being portrayed here in this episode. This is going to be so important for us in our study tonight um, and next Sunday in, in terms of Second Corinthians because we deal with similar contrasts. We deal with, with uh, unknown yet well-known. 
All right, the glory and the dishonor. These are the weapons of our warfare for the right hand and for the, for the left. And uh, the glory and the dishonor. We need uh, to, uh, to deal with that in our perspective as the bride of Christ. So stay tuned for, uh, for some of those things coming forth as well. All right, Hosanna, point three. Hosanna was shouted by believers with capacity to appreciate Psalm 118. Hosanna was shouted by believers with a capacity to appreciate Psalm 118. All right. So join me there in Psalm 118. I'll take a look at it. Believers without the capacity to appreciate it are not uh, joining in the shouting. In fact, they're rather disapproving of the shouting. And it's, uh, there is a difference, of course, between understanding a text and appreciating it. <laughs> I have no doubt that the Pharisees knew this text. They had it memorized. So the, the, the preeminent Pharisees had the entire, uh, their entire scripture memorized. But um, there's no question that they knew it. These were some of the, the, uh, the halal songs. These were the songs that they would sing on their pilgrimage. Uh, they would sing this on their way up to Jerusalem for their, uh, for their feast. And so what's happening here on Palm Mundi? All right, Passover is approaching. And you have pilgrims that are coming in from all over. And they're singing these, these psalms here. Okay, the psalms of, uh, we call them the psalms of ascent. All right, and so there's a whole body of, of Scripture that they sing on occasions such as this. And this one just comes alive because, you know, they've been singing these for, for years and years and years, centuries. Uh, but this time it's different because Messiah is actually here. Yahweh is here. And uh, so we'll see. Now there is a... Uh, what do I want to pick up on this? The... Um, let's just pick up with verse 19 without reading the entire psalm. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me. You have become my salvation. Just notice the themes of salvation, okay? Because they occur in this paragraph, they occur in the next paragraph, they occur uh, throughout the uh, Psalms. Um, we understand, of course, salvation as it relates to righteousness, as it relates to being delivered from sin, receiving eternal life, and so forth. Um, and, and they should have, and, and I think the humble believers did understand that, uh, but unfortunately, the more earthly-minded Jewish folks limited their understanding of salvation to simply political deliverance. Uh, simply, let's get rid of Rome, let's have our own kingdom. Okay, And they thought they had done that. They thought they had done that when they fought for their independence and they threw off the the Greeks, and they set up their, their Maccabean throne. They thought, oh, things are wonderful. Things are great. And then uh, Pompey came through, and the Romans came through and, and uh, conquered Jerusalem, and they were subject to Rome again. And, and very, uh, very sad about that, because then they were subjected to that Edomite Herod, and they were subjected to, uh, to, uh, to different Roman-appointed governors. See, And they viewed all that as a problem. Um failing to recognize that it wasn't a problem. It was fulfilled scripture. Daniel had said, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. So the idea that you're going to throw off Greece and create your own kingdom, 
is unbiblical. Greece had to be overthrown by Rome, and Rome will be overthrown by Jesus Christ. Now, that's not all he's going to do, though. That's important. That's all they wanted was for the Messiah to come and give us political freedom. Give us, uh, you know, land flowing with milk and honey and feed us and all this other good stuff. The idea of saving, the idea of the uh, Messiah crushing the serpent's head and redeeming humanity from the realm of sin, that was far from their thinking for the worldly-minded, earthly-focused Jewish people. But here you see salvation mentioned repeatedly and righteousness. The righteous will enter. Well, how do you receive righteousness? Right? Abraham believed God. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. How does any Jewish person receive righteousness? By grace through faith. And so we see in verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. It's only a bare remnant. Children, women, sinners, tax collectors, and other uh, irrelevant, unimportant people. Okay? To be blunt, uh, they're not the... Power brokers, they're not the, uh, the high power people, they're not the rulers, they're not the authorities. They're just normal folks who love the Lord and understand Scripture. This is the Lord's doing, it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. We quote that a lot, we apply it to any old day in the week. But can I, can I ruin one of your favorite verses for you? Okay. Its primary application has to do with the arrival of the Messiah in Jerusalem. Okay? This is the day. And it's been coming for the last 173,880 days. It's finally here. Hosanna, save now. Okay? And it references the, uh, the, uh, the day that Jesus Christ goes to the cross. O Lord, do save. Which, by the way, we can celebrate every single day of our life. So we can say this is the day the Lord has made and we can have joy today because of this day, which was Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D. All right. O Lord, do save. Do save. We beseech you. And this is the Aramaic of Hosea Na. Okay? Remember Hosea, the prophet Hosea, which means salvation. Remember Joshua, uh, these, these terms for salvation. We have, the, and then the na ending in the Aramaic is your, is your uh, cohortative. Um, but here's Hosanna. Save now. Save now. We beseech you, O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Can you separate the first half of that verse from the second half? Can you have the prosperity without the work of salvation? Can you have the cross without the crown? I mean, the crown without the cross. Okay? No. If second advent prosperity is going to come, then first advent salvation has to be accomplished, and that's going to be through the suffering of the cross. I like the uh, you can take verse 25 and really uh, understand both advents and both aspects of what's happening there. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So here is a remnant fulfilling this. But we're going to see here in just a moment, second advent, the kingdom, the seating of the Davidic throne cannot occur until the entire nation fulfills this verse and sings, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that won't happen until tribulation humbles them. All right. So let's spell this out now in the sub points. 
Hosanna is an Aramaic exclamation from the Hebrew text of Psalm 118.25. Hosanna is an Aramaic exclamation. And, th- and exclamations like hurrah, yay, uh, yippee, okay? Uh, we've got several. Uh, but exclamations will typically have an origin, but then the exact meaning of that exclamation oftentimes is lost as it comes into a more general um, exclamation type use. Okay? Can anyone tell me what hurrah means? Or huzzah? Linton, you, you can appreciate the old British huzzah, can't you? Okay. <laughs> Nobody knows anymore. All right. From the old High Germanic and things. But I had to look that up. I mean, nobody knows this stuff anymore. And, and that's what happens here with Hosanna. It's similar to what happens with Hallelujah. Hallelujah legitimately means it's an, it's an imperative to praise Yah, to, to halal, praise Yahweh. But we typically shout Hallelujah as if it just means hooray. Neat stuff is happening. I'm happy. Um, you know, hooray, Hallelujah. You know, goodbye means God be with ye. But do we mean, do we really mean God be with ye when we say goodbye? Or do the, is the Dios thought of when we say, ah, Dios, I commend you to God. See, Dios meaning God, so ah, Dios. I'm commending you to God for safety as you travel. Ah, Dios. No, we just think adios means goodbye. Okay. Anyway, these, these exclamations oftentimes are thoughtless uh, and, and it's unfortunate because that's, I think it's a, it's a way in which the adversary um, removes the actual doctrinal significance from so much that should be significant. So uh, we had this exclamation, Hosanna means saves, like Maranatha means come Lord. Um, it means primarily do save, but as an interjection of joy, it has a parallel in the expression glory to God. Glory to God. And even that expression loses its significance when we say it too many times. Glory to God. Praise God. Sometimes it just becomes an idiom and we don't think through what we're really saying. And so glory to God in the highest. Uh, other expressions that we have here. Glory to God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And... Um, Save, Lord, we do beseech you. When, it's twice used over in Luke in the same parallel. Luke 2.14, Luke 19.38. Luke 2, of course, is the announcement of the birth of Christ. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. On earth, peace among men. Over to chapter 19 and verse 38. That same idiom of glory to God is tied together with this uh, Hosanna. And so uh, they bring the colt to Jesus and they throw their coats on the colt to put Jesus on it. Uh, He was going. They were spreading their coats on the road as soon as he was approaching. 
near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. All right. So, exclamations and and the uh, Hosanna. It means do save. And that's what he's going to do. All right. It's what he's going to do. He is going to save them. Secondly, the chief cornerstone. The chief cornerstone is on hand to fulfill the day which Yahweh has made or has prepared. Psalm 118, verse 22, compared to Psalm 118, verse 24. The chief cornerstone is on hand to fulfill the day which Yahweh has made. Psalm 118.22 and Psalm 118.24. And believers with a perspective for this can worship and rejoice. I think they still have to identify the rejoicing over a rejected stone. They have to know that they're going to be in the minority. The stone which the builders rejected. He's on hand to fulfill the day which Yahweh has made. Psalm 118.24. What do we read about in Hebrews? He says, Behold, I come to do your will. I come to do your will. When the thought crosses his mind that maybe there's a plan B, maybe he can avoid the cross, is it possible for this cup to pass by me? No, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. I've come to do your will. And thank God he did. I mean, goodness. The whole... Uh, plan of God sits right here on the volitional obedience of Jesus Christ. What a provision. The, um, well, we'll have more to say on this because the, the um, theologians don't like to evaluate the test that the Lord faced. And I think it makes people uncomfortable to evaluate the test that he faced and the victory that he won. And it is such an unpleasant thing to consider that most, and even evangelical Bible students, um, retreat fearfully to a, a theological position that, well, it wasn't really a test. He couldn't have failed. And uh, we're going to spend some time on that. We're going to spend some time on what deity cannot do, what humanity can do, and how the God-man was both tempted uh, and um, well, it's going to be a it's going to be a thorough study. So if it's something that now bothers you, then you know, good, <laughs> let it bother you, chew on it, pray over it, wrestle with it, search the scriptures, but don't hide from the scriptures and don't sit in denial that, uh, well, Jesus wasn't really tempted because Scripture says He was. Or that Jesus wasn't concerned. Scripture says He was. He warned His disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. For the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's either a legitimate warning from Jesus to His disciples or um, He was lying to them because He wasn't really tested in that, uh, in that uh, potential to reject the will of God the Father. All right. We'll deal with that too. But the chief cornerstone's on hand to fulfill that coming day. Thirdly, point C. 
witnesses to the raising of Lazarus. They're going to add their own testimonies to the chorus of praise. Much to the chagrin of the, uh, the Pharisees who wanted to shut the whole thing up. Okay. Witnesses to the raising of Lazarus added their own testimonies to the chorus of praise. And for this, we turn over to John 12 and get the parallel details there. John 12, verses 17 and 18, to the chagrin of the Pharisees, verse 19. You know, the glories of the good news, the glories of why our feet are so blessed for bringing this good news, um, we get to bring the good news, and every one of us brings the same message, but every one of us also brings a different message. We proclaim the gospel. We proclaim the good news. We sing our own hosannas. And we tell a unbeliever about eternal life. And we proclaim the hosannas of Good Friday, of the cross. And that's what we all have in common. But we also proclaim... September of 1973, or whatever date it was for you when you came to Christ. Okay, That's also a part of the story. That's your part of the story. It's your um, added testimony that contributes to the chorus of glory. Now here's this group, they're adding the story of Lazarus into... The Hosanna songs that these children are singing on the on the road while the palm branches are being laid down. Okay, let's look at it. John 12. And so there's there's any number of additional um, praise testimonies that can come into a a um, a testimony, into an evangelism event, into a a, a ministry of reconciliation. You can certainly tell them what Christ did for them. And you can add to that if you'd like, if you're led to, if it, if, it, if it is appropriate, what Christ did for you. All right. So in John 12, we read, um, again, um, there's the donkey and here's the fulfillment of Scripture. And uh, these things the disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him. And that he had done these things to him. So relax if maybe doctrine isn't clicking on the first time you hear it. Just chew on it. Maybe down the road. Then it'll start coming together piece by piece. And, and uh, we can appreciate that. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. The fact that this supporting testimony was being offered, look what it did. It actually drove the numbers up in the, in the turnout on the crowds. It actually increased the opportunity then for the Hosanna singers, once he reaches Jerusalem, for them to have a, a larger venue or a larger audience. Which we see there. For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So there was a larger group there than would have otherwise been on this particular Monday morning. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. <laughs> and they're saying that like it's a bad thing. Okay. They're pulling their hair out. They're complaining. Oh my goodness. He's doing too many miracles. He's doing. And, and what miracles are the Pharisees doing? None. Okay. 
What great crowds are they drawing? None. This has to stop. We can't. We've got to stop this. They've already agreed it's going to happen. They're just trying to figure out how without getting ripped to shreds. Trying to find a place of ambush, a place out of public view, a time or a place or a something where, uh, where they can put him in custody and, 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 and get him killed as quickly as they can. I find that interesting. Point D. Pharisees tried to end the shouting, but Jesus insisted that the accolades had to be voiced. And we, we read that a little bit earlier in Luke 19, verses 39 and 40. Pharisees tried to end the shouting, but Jesus insisted that the accolades had to be voiced. When you're making an effort to diminish the praise and glory for Jesus Christ, <laughs> who, who are you serving? All right. And um, just consider, because we all do it, what are the ways or the circumstances in which we, from time to time, um, work to diminish the praise and glory for Jesus Christ? Well, how about when our, in our pride and in our carnality, but you know, motivated by pride, we um, seek to magnify ourselves? Why would we do something that stupid? But in so doing, are we not diminishing the praise and glory for Jesus Christ? If I try to take credit for something, that it was His grace that made it happen? All right. And I think there's other applications there as well. But um, again, some of the Pharisees of the crowd said to Him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Not Lord, not Christ, not Messiah. Teacher, of course, they themselves were also teachers, so they can refer to him here on a pure basis. Just wicked. Rebuke your disciples, but Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. The stones will cry out. All right, 15 minutes left. Let's try to see what else is the significance here. First of all, coming in the name of the Lord. Point four. Coming in the name of the Lord was celebrated by only a remnant at first advent. We have the verses here. But it will be universally required before second advent. It will be universally required before second advent. In fact, he cannot come at second advent. He cannot return to Jerusalem until Jerusalem accepts him as their king. Now, in the Prean ministry, back in episode number 20, he had actually previously spoken of this. Um, Luke 13, 35. And I think he probably gave this message a number of times after his rejection. I think throughout the Prean ministry, this was probably a common thread. That Israel is going to need a repentance. That Israel's rejected their king. And so in Luke 13.35, we have the message given here as he's uh, teaching the different villages and the Pharisees warn him that Herod's trying to put him to death. And so he tells the Pharisees to go and talk to that old fox. And, but he does say, this is, this is pretty interesting, Luke 13 uh, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons, perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. 
He's got a message for, for uh, Herod where he stresses the third day. Of course, Herod's not going to have any kind of perspective for that. Then he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. You were not willing. This is sovereignty of God, free will of man. Calvinists hate this verse. They usually tell lies about it. <laughs> All right. Um, behold, your house is left to you desolate. Understand, Israel rejects their Messiah and they face consequences. They're going to be dispersed. Your house is left to you desolate. I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, and this is you, the entire nation. This is you, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets. You, Jerusalem, who were not willing to accept the first advent of Jesus Christ. When you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118 has to be real to the nation, not just to a remnant, not just to a handful with positive volition. The entire Jewish nation must submit to their Christ. Now, uh, preterists and other heretics uh, that, that try to say that, well, all of Revelation is fulfilled and they deny a future tribulation somewhere. They, they, they admit that that verse is in there. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they say, oh, well, that was all taken care of on Palm Sunday. Okay? Not so. Uh, if Luke 13 was the only place we had this, I might agree with you. But we also have it in Matthew 23. Okay? And that's important. The fact that we have it in Matthew 23 tells you what? That he, he gave them this message before Palm Monday. And he gave them the same message again after Palm Monday. <laughs> All right. And why did he give the message again after Palm Monday and talk about it still being future if it just got fulfilled two days ago? Okay. That's a clue. It didn't just get fulfilled two days ago. This wasn't fulfilled on Palm Monday. Okay. This isn't going to get fulfilled till second advent. It's going to take tribulation to humble Israel. So in Matthew 23 now, here in this um, great, great uh, stretch where he's giving these, these awesome eschatological messages here in the latter part of, the God, of, of Matthew. But Matthew 23, 39 Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets, stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Okay, again, free will of man. Sovereignty of God, free will of man. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Same language, okay? In Luke, of course, it was before the Palm Monday entry, but here in Matthew, it's two days after the Palm Monday entry. And he's still looking forward. I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And last Monday doesn't count. <laughs> okay? Because he says, from now on, you will not see me. He's going away. They've rejected their Christ. He's going to die, be buried, be raised, and ascend to heaven. And Israel will be under God's discipline. And, and this nation is not going to see him until... Second Advent. They're going to have to look upon Him whom they pierced. Okay? Which is also Scripture. It's also prophecy. They will look upon Him whom they pierced. And um, then 
they will accept their Messiah. Point five. The two advents were still not understood by the ones praising Jesus. They're singing Hosanna. They've got a doctrinal understanding of Psalm 118. This remnant I'm talking about. And they are correct in praising Him. But they are still unaware of uh, His departure and the, the, uh, the, the time frame that's going to take place. Now we have 2,000 years since First Advent. They're unaware of the distinction between First Advent and Second Advent. They're singing Hosanna. They're asking Him to save them. But they don't understand that kingdom has been delayed. Kingdom has been rejected. It's going to wait now until second advent. It's going to wait until they fulfill this. The whole nation has to agree with their Hosanna praises. I've given you many times, but First Peter 1.11, they did not understand the distinctions between first advent and second advent. It was deliberately withheld from them. God did not allow the Jewish prophets to understand it. He didn't allow the angels to understand it. As to this salvation, this Hosanna, do save salvation. The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time. That's the debate. Are there two Christs or are there two times? Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. First Advent and Second Advent. Now we can answer it. It's two times. One person, there's only one Christ, but he's going to come two times. We can answer it because we've got a New Testament. The mystery the, the, the mystery has been unfolded. The revelation has been given. It was revealed to them. They were not serving themselves, but you. Jewish scriptures weren't, uh, didn't have that information. Jewish prophets didn't have access to that information. Angels didn't have access to that information. They're not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. In other words, the apostles and prophets of the church age. Things into which angels long to look. So, since you, church age saints, have a perspective to distinguish between first advent and second advent, and we're the only stewardship in between the two advents, we're unique the plan of God. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Oh man, do we have work to do. Looking back at what was fulfilled, looking forward to what's still coming. Being diligent with a Hebrew canon and a Greek canon. Being diligent with a completed Bible. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right, so the two Advents were still not understood by the ones praising Jesus. And he basked in their joy with his own private grief. Luke 19, verses 41 through 44. He basked in their joy with his own private grief. <laughs> They're all singing Hosanna. The Pharisees are saying, shut up. Jesus says they can't shut up. The stones will start crying out. And when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. Saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. 
but now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So they're, uh, they're all happy and singing and he's, he's crying. He's weeping. He knows what's on the way. He knows what's on the way. All right, and then the last thing we'll give you is back to Matthew again. Matthew 21. Now in your harmony, these two verses belong with the next episode, but I've gone ahead and shoved them up into this episode just because. You realize in the uh, outline here, it says Matthew 21, verses 1 through 9. But I've gone ahead and... Put verses 10 and 11 in here. Bystanders wanted to know who he was. Bystanders wanted to know who he was. And the prophetic identification, while accurate, was incomplete. Bystanders wanted to know who he was. Matthew 21.10 And the prophetic identification from verse 11, while accurate, was incomplete. <coughs> it was incomplete. And this uh, will kind of serve to bridge us from the triumphal entry to the cleansing of the temple, which takes place in verses 12 and following. But it says, When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds. So it's not just the children. It's not just the the uh, disciples or folks with positive volition. It's, just, it's, it's the crowds. And earlier we had seen that they were some, there were some folks who were wondering, is he even going to show up? Is he even going to show up? And here he comes. Okay, he showed up. Here he is. Well, who is this? And the crowds are saying, this is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth in Galilee. Is there anything inaccurate about that? It's all true. It is Jesus. He is a prophet. He's from Nazareth. But what is not being said there, okay? The Son of David, the King of Israel, the uh, Son of God, Yahweh, our Savior, the Messiah, HaMashiach. There is so much that could be said there, and it's not. And it's not. And so again, I think we have reflected in this a particular um, ignorance of who he exactly was and what he exactly was going to do. And a... uh, and ignorance related to what the salvation was that was promised to them. And so it's interesting. We need to, uh, and I think there's um, similar, um, we're out of time, but I I think there's similar uh, things that happen in our day and age when uh, believers are... um, giving uh, incomplete information about Jesus. Or they're, uh, they've got a, a, an incomplete understanding of, of God. And they, they, maybe they uh, have whole churches that want to celebrate love, God's love, and don't want to talk about God's justice, His righteousness, His wrath, 
And so when you're only telling part of the story, the, the elements you're leaving out can be critical, huge. And uh, you can be left with misperceptions. You can be left with maladjusted um, viewpoint regarding any number of different things. And so this lame answer here, well, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth and Galilee. I, you know, it's like when the Lord asked Peter, who do the people think I am? Oh, you know, you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Okay, but who do you say that I am? That becomes important. We need to identify with that. We were to be clear in our Christology. Okay, well, next week we'll return to uh, the very next verse then. Jesus entered the temple, drove out those who were buying and selling. You know, he did this early in his ministry, recorded for us in the Gospel of John. Now he's doing it in his final week on, uh, on Palm Monday. And uh, he has his entry, I think, probably in the morning and then this event here in the evening. Um, or in the afternoon, any event. This is a pretty busy Monday for him. And then uh, when he's done, in verse 17, we see he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Uh, he, he'll wrap up Monday and go back to Bethany for the night. And uh, we're just going to take it day by day, Monday through Friday, and then Easter Sunday coming up. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the uh, the glories of our King, Father, um, rejected by his people. And yet, uh, Father, what, a, what a, a blessing for us to understand that your plan is not thwarted by our uh, rebellion, by our disobedience, by our uh, thick-headed failures. Father, I know I've got so many. And your plan is so uh, wonderful. Thank you for truth. Thank you for believers who love the truth. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.